0: And so I'm happy to welcome everybody today uh, for Anthony Adler, who's a research associate in the history department at Carleton College, uh, to talk with us about his new book, Neptune's Laboratory, Fantasy, Fear, and Science at Sea. So I'll give it over to you, Anthony.
1: Uh, All right. Well, thank you, Dolly. And thank you, Fanarna, for organizing this. And and thank you all for, for being here. Um, it's, it's very early on the West coast where I am. So, uh, I'm going to apologize if I'm, if my brain's a little foggy still, but I've got my morning coffee, so we're ready to go. Um, so I thought I would start by talking a little bit just about how I ended up writing a book about the history of marine science, a little bit of background about me, um, how I ended up getting interested in the history of marine science. So I grew up in, in Newfoundland, uh, which is in the Maritimes on the East coast of Canada, and when I was in elementary school, um, there was a really big event that happened. In 1992, the cod fishery collapsed. And this, there was a declaration of a moratorium and a, a way of life in Newfoundland that had sustained uh, the people there for, for centuries, literally, collapsed overnight. Um, and it just it made a huge impression on me, at, um, even though I was you know, still pretty young at the time, just that you could sort of look out at, at an ocean that looked from the surface completely unchanged. But um, it had obviously been completely changed. And not only that, but it had this huge impact on, on the people of Newfoundland, whose identity was so tied to the resources of the sea. So it just it made an impression on me. And it sort of uh, maybe that was the point that sort of launched my interest in the history of the marine environment. And then the other experience that I think was really important in sort of setting me on the path to this book was that in uh, college, I was very fortunate to be able to participate in an off-campus study program uh, with Sea Education Association, which allowed me to go on a tall ship, uh, a big sailing vessel, and sail in the Pacific from Tahiti to Hawaii. Um, And that was my Introduction to oceanographic work. So not only were we sailing, you know using the whole technology of sail But we were also doing some of the oceanographic sampling techniques that various marine scientists do So that was really my introduction to the work of science at sea And it was sort of at that point that I knew I wanted to Do more learn more at least about the history of marine science So, um this book I see it as fitting into a larger historiography of the history of oceanography and the history of oceanography itself is, is not that uh, old uh, sub it's it, for a long time it was written by oceanographers so you get sort of a textbook version of the history of oceanography and, and uh, what we've sometimes called that is great ship narratives so the stories of how various expeditions it's always the HMS Challenger the HMS Challenger founded the discipline of oceanography Um, and sort of initially when I was looking at the history of oceanography, I was following that path a little bit and I was looking at oceanographic vessels as a particular type of scientific space. So how did the challenger help establish the new discipline of oceanography? Well, it brought the scientific legitimacy of the laboratory to sea. So, one of the first kernels of my book was was a paper I wrote called "The Ship as Laboratory," and that was a thread that i I also tried to develop in the book. But I also wanted to write a history of marine science that departed from that a little bit uh, and did more to include other groups of actors in my story. So I wanted to tell something about say something about the history of scientific discovery and and great ships, but we oceanography, it's also always been uh, a big science, meaning that it has required the support of, of political actors uh, and also the engagement and support of members of the public as well. So the way to tie these three groups uh, together, scientists, politicians, and the broader public, I argue in the book, is to look at the role of imagination and emotion uh, in marine science. So specifically, what did these groups imagine that ocean science would accomplish and, and what were they trying to achieve in doing marine science and supporting marine science? So if they were thinking about the future then through the marine si- through ocean science, uh, what were their hopes, fantasies, and fears that motivated them? And that's how you get the title of my book, right? Which is Neptune's Laboratory, Fantasy, Fear, and Science at Sea. So it's looking at how people thought, use marine science to think about the future and what the future they envisioned tells us about their fantasies and fears. So, in, in terms of the setting for my book, I, I compared uh, three different national contexts. So, the United Kingdom, which was really important for the beginnings of oceanographic science in the nineteenth century, I compared it with France, also, which I include Monaco in that story, uh, and then I looked at the United States as well. As well. And so, sort of the story that I, I tell, I think you could you could probably tell this in various national contexts. But these are the three um, regions that I really focused on. Uh, and it, it took me to, to various archives. I, I just point out so the more interesting archives that it led me to were the, uh, the palace archives in Monaco, uh, the archives of one of the oldest marine stations in Europe, which is in, in Roscoff in, in Brittany in France. Uh, And then I also did interviews for this uh, with oceanographers at the University of Washington, and then I interviewed some people who had been involved in scuba diving in the early days in the late 1960s and 1970s. So I thought what I I would do now is just sort of give you an overview of what I cover in in the different uh, chapters of my book. So my book is divided up into uh, five chapters, and it moves chronologically, um, and it's, they're not exactly case stories, I'm more looking at specific uh, types of, well, I'm looking at both regions and also, uh, the, the w- most, mostly the regions and specific actors that I think help move the story forward. So in, in chapter one, I, I start with presenting an overview of marine sciences in the early 19th century. This is a time when uh, technological developments, both in the, on land and at sea, made the oceans a much more accessible place both for scientists and the public, and that's what I stress. So for scientists, uh, there's this blurring of of yachting culture uh, in the 19th century with scientific work at sea. So this is the first time that oceanographers can really go to the ocean and go do scientific work with much more relative comfort than they could have in the 18th century, for instance. But there's simultaneously this new fascination with, of of public fascination with the oceans as well. Uh, So uh, you have various people in the public reading uh, about the ocean in, in in books, but they're also experiencing the ocean firsthand in new ways through public aquarium, aquariums, house aquariums. Uh, and they're also eating uh, seafood like they had never done before. Like one of the connections there, for instance, is that railway networks at the end of the 19th century allow both publics to go to the, to the coast, but it also allows uh, fishermen on the coast to bring new produce, new new fish products into the Metropole as well. So they're discovering the sea both at the seashore, but also in London and Paris at expositions or at the fish market. Uh, In chapter two, that's when I really focus on uh, the development of coastal marine stations. And this is a story where I'm looking more at the development of, of marine stations in France and comparing what's going on in France with what's going on in Britain. So in in Britain you have the uh, Challenger expedition, you have some ocean going voyages and the French never really get these big state funded oceanographic voyages and I was trying to figure out why. Uh, And it turns out that the French are much more interested in the marine station model and it has to do with the way they see marine science fitting into the French national product, uh, natural project, sorry. Um, So marine stations garnered support in France because they could aid local fisheries. The fisheries were connected to the idea of French national power. You could draft fishermen for the French Navy. And marine stations also embodied this, a a democratized vision of science, um, something that connected the national glory of the state with broad access to public uh, education. So you have this explosion of marine sciences, uh, or sorry, marine stations uh, at the end of the 19th century. At the same time, the early proponents of the marine station movement in France, they were were making appeals for sort of international collaboration in marine science, but they were sort of thwarting themselves because of French rivalry with Prussia. Um, so you start to see national rivalries in this period that limit and, and sort of stunt uh, the growth of, of marine science in France. I then go from there to to look at the case of, of Monaco, uh, and and I spend some time talking about one of the most important figures in, in 19th century oceanography, and that's Prince Albert of Monaco, Prince Albert I, um, who's sort of a contrast to the French because he tries to really develop an international program. Uh, both in Monaco and in Paris with various oceanographic institutes that he founds. And this all is thwarted again. So this is back and forth story that I tell of scientists trying to develop this international collaborative program. This is their dream. Everybody's gonna work together to to study this, a large territory. And then you have periods of global conflict like the first world war that end this dream. And that's what happens to Prince Albert's dream as well as a collapse with World War I. So after World War I, then I, then I shift uh, across the world to the United States to the Pacific. And what you find in the interwar period is that the Pacific Ocean seems to promise as new terrain for scientific uh, collaboration on an international scale. And there's sort of this break with the old world that the old world sort of failed at this and, and the Pacific will be the new region where this can take place. And this is something that people particularly on, on the West Coast of the United States um, talk about and, and try to organize with the Pacific Science Congresses, and I tell this story once again to try and bring the public into the story. Uh, I look specifically at the fairgrounds, so the the 1939 Golden Gate International Exposition in San Francisco, which my grandmother went to. <laughs> so uh, that was a sort of a personal story that I brought in, and then I, I'll also look at um, fairs later, the 1962 uh, Seattle World's Fair. But there's this parallel story again, at the fairground there's this appeal to international collaboration in the Pacific and then the dream collapses again with with World War II. So what World War II does for the history of oceanography or in the history of oceanography, is it really shows how um, military patronage becomes really important for for marine sciences as the oceans are transformed into sort of a a battleground between the United States and, and the Soviet Union. So that in in chapter four, that's where I pick up again. um, And I I take as my case study there something called Project Sea Use, which was a program in the 1960s and 1970s to map and um, study an underwater volcano, a seamount off the coast of Washington. Uh, And this is where I interviewed some of the divers who were involved in that program. And initially what they wanted to do was, was put a, a habitat down. Uh, so a, a literally a station down on top of the seamount and claim it. And And I look at the the rhetoric involved around this project. Um, there's a lot of fear that if, if the United States doesn't claim this submarine territory, then the Russians will, and it's only a matter of time before they'll, will have uh, missiles positioned on seamounts off the coast of the United States. So once again, here's this fear about how the, um, now the the bottom of the ocean could become this militarized zone. And then uh, finally, in, in my in chapter five, I I pick up again this thread that I was talking about originally about um, how marine spaces have become increasingly lab-like, how the boundary between field and laboratory has become blurred in, in contemporary marine science. So while these new technological innovations have allowed this boundary to be blurred, I argue that oceanographers of the present share with their predecessors, um, the naturalists in the 19th century, a desire to transform the marine environment into a more accessible and legitimate space uh, for scientific experimentation, but that these innovations also inform, um, they have informed, our, our understanding of human caused threats to the marine environment and our understanding of climate change in the marine environment. But they also continue, this is the continuation of the story of the way that they shape contemporary imaginations of the ocean's future. Uh, so I thought i would just finish by reading a little section from, from my conclusion. So this section is called uh, Dying Seas of the Anthropocene. Declarations that the ocean is dying have become commonplace. We read headlines almost daily telling us that the oceans are choked with plastic, overfished, and rapidly acidifying. Yet, even in dying, we are told, the ocean threatens human existence as sea level rise, sea surface temperatures increase, and commercial fish stocks disappear. The ocean has thus become emblematic both of a natural world victimized by humanity and of nature's possible vengeance. In a 2014 video by the nonprofit organization Conservation International, the growling baritone of the actor Harrison Ford speaks for the ocean. Quote, I give, they take, but I can always take back. End quote. The message is powerful because it conjures images of both the primordial sea as crucible of life and the biblical flood. Destruction of life as punishment for human sin. Yet, a vengeful ocean is but one of several historical depictions of the sea, some of which have gained prominence at particular moments, while others have faded away. In the 1960s and 1970s, many scientists, engineers, and policymakers approached the ocean as a vast but resistant reservoir of untapped natural resources. The hostility of the ocean was understood in the context of national calls for increasing exploitation. Rear Admiral William Cushing, for example, in 1967, described the ocean as, quote, hostile in almost every way you can think. In Hushing's view, the the task set for man was to, quote, train himself for the hostility and eventually, quote, find ways to convert the hostility to friendliness. Today, the ocean is increasingly cast as fragile, even as dying. And while the ocean voiced by Harrison Ford remains threatening, the message is that humans are responsible for that threat. We, not the ocean, have taken too much. Once we recognize the increasing dominance of a conception of the ocean as fragile and dying, we are prompted to ask how this shapes conservation efforts and whether it has a net positive or negative influence on marine environmental protection. And then I I go on to argue that that is potentially harmful to, to think about, to develop this dying seas imaginary, because if we say the sea is dying, then we've given up hope for how it might be saved. So I guess I should end it there.
2: All right, thank you. So we're now going to open up for questions then. So just to remind you to just write it in the comment field if you have one. Um, I will start us off then so people can uh, come with their questions then uh while we talk. So so one of the things you do, I mean you you follow then this this story through several different locations and over time as well. Uh and you you presented initially this analytical framework of you see, looking at emotions uh, to as something that ties it together. So could you elaborate a little bit about that as a, as a framework for analyzing this history? And I think in particular, like, do you see, uh, so historian technology, uh, Tom Hughes talked about national styles of technology. Are there some, can you see something like national styles of emotions too, that influences how different actors uh, well, act in this story?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I have to admit, I had not thought about National styles of of emotion, but certainly there are um, uh, particular fears that are are specific to national contexts. Uh, at the same time, that I see some carryover. So there's always this. If you look at scientists as a group, there's a maybe that's the key is that there's sort of a culture uh, among scientists where there's this always this dream of international collaboration, and that transcends these national boundaries. But among politicians, <clears throat> there's a much more practical concern um, about, well, you know, national security essentially. Uh, and maybe that doesn't really get to your point about h- how those emotions are different. But there are certainly cultures that sort of transcend these these transnational or these national distinctions. Mm. Uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it'd be interesting to see more of that in, in a history of emotions too, to see, you know, are there, is emotions a universal thing? So that'd be for, for a later project. (laughs) Um, So we have a couple of questions. So Chris is first uh, and I've unmuted you now.
3: Hello. Hi, thank you so much for uh, this talk. So this is going to be a question of sort of at least, at least two layers of ignorance. Uh, as someone who hasn't had a chance to read the book yet, and as someone who is not, uh, certainly not a practicing historian of science. But as you lay it out and discuss it in the book, what is science? Um, and what is scientific knowledge and scientific practice? Who and what does that include? Who and what does that not include?
1: <laughs> that's so that's a really big question with what is science i'm not sure i can give you a easy definition cuz i'll i'll get you know caught up in it but um something that I, that i i look at in in the book is the difference between uh collecting in the field and analysis in the laboratory and that's something i was interested in so before i got interested in the history of marine science i was looking at at um the collecting done by naturalists leaving the uh, Jardin des Plantes, the Museum of Natural History in France. And in the, in the 18th century, there's a, there's a a tension between professional naturalists who are in metropolitan centers who argue that the only way to do analysis is to have this encyclopedic view of the world. You have to have all the possible specimens around you and then something new you can say what's new about it. Uh, And when I'm interested in the boundary between laboratory and field, and I'm following various people who have worked on this, Helen Roswadowski is in the audience, for instance, uh, also um, Robert Kohler, looking at how there's a lot of work that goes into making the field a place where you can do analysis, not just collection. Uh, So in my particular story, what's interesting is that scientists go through a lot of work in the way that they present oceanog- their oceanographic work as a legitimate form of scientific practice. And you see that all the way at the beginning in the 19th century in the official narratives that are produced uh, of these various great ship expeditions. They, they create the narrative of the great ship. And just to give you one specific example, this is something I, I like to do with my students is I, I put up a a picture of the laboratory as it's reproduced in the official narratives. And you can see this laboratory space without anybody in it, uh, and it looks nothing like what an actual ship space is. An actual ship is like this, right, half the time. (laughs) But you never see this uh, in, in the depiction of a laboratory in the official narrative. It's always this very level, organized scientific space. So that's part of the work that people, marine scientists were doing to say, look, what we were doing, we, we were taking a, a space that we know from the land is a legitimate place for scientific work and we're transforming, it. we're moving it to sea. And in the process, we're making the sea a place where you can do the same sort of work and analysis. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I've been thinking about it.
2: Okay, then we have uh,
4: Peter. Hi, Anthony, I Hi. love the book. I'm a little bit out of sight here, I'm afraid. But uh, a couple of things that particularly caught my eye. The first one, uh, the chap who turns up from Naples and is very surprised to discover that he has to actually go and find his things himself when he gets to France. And that caught my eye for a couple of reasons. The first one is this issue of the relationship between uh, the lab and the field, which you've discussed already, so I won't go into that. But it gets to one that I think Helen will perhaps want to weigh in on too. And that's that I've always thought of oceanography as being something where one earned one's stripes through the experience of being on the ship. And you've made, I think, a really nice case I'd never thought about for French exceptionalism here, which I'm gonna have to ponder a little bit more, the importance of the station as opposed to the ship. But the fact that at the station, that same element of the personal engagement with not only the culture of the place, but the procurement of the specimens oneself as being a central part of the enterprise, I'm curious whether you have a comment about whether you see that shaping their professional culture in a deeper way as well. Uh, I remember Helen telling me a story, Helen, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, but uh, about the importance even today when people give job talks of showing pictures of themselves on boats. And I recall here stories about people who work with uh, satellite oceanography who nevertheless go out of their way to point out, but I have actually been on the boat, you know. Uh, as though that's the central part of what they do. And it's never occurred to me that may be something that's Anglo-specific, Anglo-American specific. Do you perhaps have a comment firstly on whether French exceptionalism carries on a little bit more broadly? And secondly, whether you see an analogue between the importance of being on the ship and the importance of participating in the life of the station in terms of work that may be done at the shoreline rather than in the oceans?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. And I, I'll have to think about it more, but um, certainly what your, your question makes me think of is how the marine station that I looked at, specifically Roscoff, develops a culture, and you see that in, in the archive, um, where I do think people would have sort of participated in the culture of the station by replicating certain traditions. Um, and the, specifically what I was looking at in the archive were these guest logs. So everybody who worked there every summer filled out uh, a a one-page entry in the guest log, always describing what they did. Um, But it followed sort of the same um, pattern every time. And they always had to thank the same people, praising the same people. And the people that they were praising were actually the permanent staff. Um, So in the way that they praise the permanent staff it's it's almost become sort of a rite of passage uh, there's this one guy in particular who, who I um who shows up over and over again who's actually a Breton sailor who's just there for years and they, he becomes almost like a, a mascot for the station so I this is just what your comment made me think of is that you know to, it's not just that you go to R- Roscoff you go to Roscoff and you meet Marty and and you work with Marty and you gain this this knowledge that you can only gain from going to this one place. So I don't know if this carries on in other pla context, but certainly, yes, I think there's a there's there's some sort of continuity there that you could draw a parallel between the marine station as a as a as shaping a particular culture in the same way that going to sea does too. So I hope that answers your question.
2: Right, so Helen wrote in a comment here, the association of seagoing in oceanography is, I'm starting to think, something that emerged from the origins of the history of oceanography through the international congresses by oceanographers. That is, I think, Tony is right about who was doing uh, ocean sciences, whereas I think the view of uh, history of oceanography was strongly influenced by the origins of the history of the field. That's what she commented. Mm-hmm. So, uh... Then Tina has a question. Uh, I will unmute you..: there.
5: Hi, everyone. Thanks, Anthony, for the talk. I haven't had a chance to read the book, but what you've said about it really makes me excited to read it. Hello from just Northview as well, in Vancouver. And I'm saying this because my question is about place. And I'm interested in notions of place beyond the nation and if and how they shape understandings of oceans and how they work. Um, We talk about oceans, or I think about them often in an undifferentiated way, but thinking you've talked about the Atlantic and the Pacific, but then there's the North Atlantic and the South Pacific. And so I'm just wondering if you can comment on that. And further, this is sort of second question that builds on Chris's, I'm thinking about um, indigenous peoples and the role they might have played and and local knowledge in general. You're from Newfoundland, so you'll know that local fishers play an increasingly important role in monitoring the fishery. Wondering about their involvement um, in making science. So notions of place in shaping scientific knowledge of oceans and the role of indigenous peoples and local knowledge in making science. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Uh, those are great questions and just so just to the, the your second question about indigenous knowledge I mean th- I think this is something that I, I need to think more about uh, and it's it's something that's part of the feedback that I've gotten actually from the book is is that maybe this is um, a part of the story that that needs to be filled out more and certainly in contemporary oceanography I think indigenous knowledge is being brought in uh, much more I was thinking about uh, there was a professor of, of oceanography at um the University of Victoria actually, who was organizing a meeting in Hawaii, looking at how uh, indigenous knowledge in Hawaii may inform ideas about, uh, or w- may inform modern marine science. And I think specific, um, I don't remember the exact details, but it, he was talking about how, how um, there were traditional, uh, oral traditions that may be useful for understanding seasonal variation, for instance, long-term observation about seasonal change in the Pacific. So I think, yeah, that, that story needs to be written. <laughs> um, certainly about thinking about place, uh, that's, that's something I, I have thought about a, a lot. And, and that goes to, to growing up in, in Newfoundland uh, and the importance of the Grand Banks. So there, there's this uh, territory, this geographical space beneath the sea, which really has shaped the history of the province. And you know, there's a region that when the French uh were pushed to the to the French shore of Newfoundland. They were pushed away from they were on the same island, but they were pushed away from a, a marine territory. They were pushed away from the Grand Banks on, on the on the west coast of Newfoundland. The English preserved the Grand Banks. So the territory at sea has a long, long history, uh recognizing submarine features as being particularly useful or of scientific interest. So both the f- strategic interests and scientific interests. And what made me really think about this was actually something that I, I read that Prince Albert had, had written, where he he was really interested in the Gulf Stream Current. Well, lots of people have been interested in, in the Gulf Stream Current. Um but he he described the Gulf Stream Current as a historical figure. Those were his words. Uh and I think it's it's really interesting to think about how these particular features and once again this is something that that Helen has argued as well, um, that we need to pay attention to things like currents, uh, seamounts, I, I make that case in, in my book, um, but other marine features as well that may be more, more temporary, like ocean, ocean gyres, um, various things that we can write the history of very local regions in the marine environment. And it's almost like an illusion when we look out and it all seems uniform because it, it really isn't. So I hope that answers your question.
2: Okay, then Dolly has a question.
0: Yes, thank you very much. I was really struck um, when you were talking about the um, bringing in of the public and trying to make oceanography and what's happening at sea long from the the experience of most people, somehow relatable, and that they would uh, have some knowledge then of the sea. And what I really started thinking about was the, um, noaa expeditions that go on now on the oceanos yeah. and I, and and the way in which those expeditions for those who don't watch it i would tell you it's absolutely worth just having on your television anytime they are diving um because they have a team of scientists on the ship so you get this kind of ship but then they have people on shore who are scientists that are calling in and giving expert uh, insights into what a remote-operated pe- vehicle is seeing. And, and what's fascinating about it is the level of the scientific discourse that they have, um, and yet it's, you know, just being broadcast for the public, you know, general watching anybody, uh, public to somehow see what's down there. Um, so I was wondering if you had any reflections about the public and how the public is enrolled and, and what you make of something like Oceanos uh, going on now?
1: Yeah, so uh, so the um, so there's this telepresence from from oceanographic vessels. Um, but w- what was happening, which is a lo- something along the same lines, was happening when I was a graduate student uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle, and, and that was that they were developing a fiber optic system on the seabed just off the coast here. And actually, the first one was in in Canada, the Neptune system. Uh, but they were also developing it um here off the coast of Washington, and it's the same thing, live streaming 24 7 video cameras on the seafloor. Uh, and what I was really interested in, it was how the, the rhetoric um that scientists were using to describe this really this new space. And they were describing it as a laboratory. Um, one of the chief scientists of the uh the the program at the University of Washington, uh John Delaney said of this 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 region um the San Juan plate, which is where all these instruments are installed as, as a a new national laboratory. So this, this is the peak conflation of lab and field, just oceans are laboratories now. Um, but they, they have made it possible for scientists or for publics to participate in, in the scientific work in a way that wasn't possible before. And one of the examples that I, uh, bring up in the book is that there was a, um, A teenager and i can't remember exactly where he was somewhere in 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 europe watching a live feed from the neptune system and he observed uh, and brought to the attention of scientists that a sea lion was seen slurping up a hagfish and nobody knew how um, sea lions ate hagfish (laughs) so the technique is it's the type of fish that they produced tons of slime um, and nobody had observed it in the wild. So the first person to observe it because of this technology is is not a scientist. It's it's a teenager in his basement somewhere. <laughs> um, so th- yeah, that has interesting implications for what it actually means that um, the public can participate in a way that they haven't ever been able to before.
2: Great, then uh, Chris, another question. And if anyone else has anything to, to ask or comment on, um reflections then we should come with it
3: now. Okay. So again, um, the thing you just said now kind of reminds me, you know, almost when is a teenager a scientist? And it, it sort of echoes um, at the end of Kate Brown's uh, most recent book on Chernobyl, you know, spoiler alerts. Um, she talks about uh, children in, I think it's Ukraine or Belarus, uh, berry-picking, and she sort of suggests that we think of those children as nuclear waste workers hmm. as opposed to kids berry-picking. And I actually think that's rather apt here, because I, I actually agree with the thinking that I've perhaps laid out, that we should ask the question, when is a teenager a scientist? Um, I think Tina picked up on the fact that my initial question was a, a bit of a leading one, or at least I was interested in something particular which is indigenous science and knowledge which is not my field per se but as someone who works on indigenous history my sense of it is that there is historical indi- indigenous knowledge and practice um and it sounds like in history of science um well i guess the question i'm wondering is to what degree has history of science incorporated um a broad, expansive idea of sets of ideas and practices of what science is, versus how much does history of science reproduce a sort of normative idea of what science is? Um, again, who who is the scientist? What is science? We have that sort of you know lab versus field science. I guess it's a set of questions. But um, there are sort of more well-known moments, say, in the history of the U.S. of of citizen scientists and and children in education and education, whatnot. But um, right, there is historically contingent indigenous knowledge and practice as opposed to just modern day contributions that you know now scientists are sort of paying attention to so is there is that happening in history of science, and how can we, as historians work to excavate these sort of either parallel or maybe even interconnected various practices of producing scientific knowledge and understanding the world
1: I mean all I can say is that i i uh I also need to learn more about this. I don't have a really great answer for you, but uh, it's, it's, um, yeah. I think it's it's maybe potentially. I I, I get the impression that it's more a recent project to do this, but uh, I, again, it's it's not something that I have looked that much into, and I, I need to look more into myself.
2: I mean, there's also a lot of, of research coming out on on uh, c- citizen science that it might be worth looking into. So, but we have a, a question now from Helen i have unmuted you
0: hi everyone um, i was wondering tony um after reading your manuscript i came up with the idea for a class i'm just finishing this week um, called history through fiction which i'm teaching as histories of imagined futures and um i i just wanted to uh, i would be very interested of course i'm interested in the history of oceanography but i'd be interested in hearing you talk a little bit more about Uh, The fear and fantasy in the category of imagined futures because I know we've talked about some of those um, crazy 70s novels that that, um, You know, you've called my attention to so I would just be really interested in in asking you to talk a little bit more about that aspect of your work
1: Yeah, well, I you know, I guess something i haven't talked about um, that much is that it's not just that the public is being influenced by what they're being told by scientists uh, you also have science fiction writers who are sort of boundary crossers in, in a way. Um, and that goes back to the 19th century with people like Jules Verne. Um, and what's interesting about Jules Verne's science fiction is that it is very much informed by his contemporary science. Um, and so to give an example from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it... He he talks about them being underwater. Yes, using a all, all the technology that he describes from his the diving suit to the submarine. Or, it's all based on real technology that he had witnessed in some form. Um, and then they spend time in, in the narrative, going down to the seafloor and, and talking at length about submarine telegraph cables. And it's to a certain extent it's the same thing with uh, Arthur C. Clarke. You know, once you get into the 20th century, it's it's. Uh, science fiction, which is very much inspired by contemporary science. So I think, I think part of the story then maybe is, is how, where, how do these messages get across? Where, where, who is creating the, the, the future? And, and maybe it's not so simple that it just, that scientists or the public just has a fear, right? They don't just have a, a fantasy. There are people who are actively creating a specific story that gains currency, um, and i I think that's what maybe we need to pay attention to and, and specifically as historians that's that's what we can tease out the the history of the origin of these specific ideas about the future, who who's responsible for them, who shapes them. Hopefully that adds a little bit. <laughs>
2: All right. So then as the final question, I'm going to read uh, Elaine's question because she had audio problems. So she was wondering if you could talk a bit about constructions of gender aboard those ships and in marine biology more generally, and perhaps connect this to your studies of emotions like fear, fantasy, maybe even love and wonder connected to the ocean.
1: Yeah, again, this is (laughs) this is something that I I wanted. I need to do more of. in the future (laughs) which i I realize is sort of a cop-out question but something that i've been i've been aware of so my uh i'm married to a marine microbiologist um so i I am very aware of the experience uh, of women going going to sea um and the the oceanography as specifically ships have been a a male environment and there's a lot that goes with that that has been you know an obstacle for for um marine scientists. And I think that is a story that hasn't been written yet. Um, and I, I, I may think I address it a little bit in the book, but probably not uh, as much as it could be addressed. And it's certainly, as the history of oceanography has been told, it's, it's very much a, a male uh, account. And I don't think, I think much more can be done to tease out how that experience uh, of uh, of, of female oceanographers has been different and how, and how that that affects the larger story about fantasies and fears related to marine science.
0: Well, thank you very much. Um, I know this has been a really interesting to think about my own um, wonderings about oceanography as I watch. Uh, Oceanus and those kind of dives live, um, as well as having visited Monaco and Prince Albert's collection uh, myself and and thinking about where those fit into larger narratives of oceanography and its history and how it's developed over time and the fantasies and fears uh, that are both uh, created and projected um, through those stories. So I want to thank Anthony very much for talking about Neptune's laboratory, uh, which is available from Harvard University Press. Um, So I hope you'll all get a copy